the project itself was not about blaming police or pointing a finger at anyone specifically. It's about highlighting the gaps in our systems here in Oklahoma. It's about what could be done better. It's about how to improve things. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Mac Leeson. On today's episode, our special guest is Whitney Bryan. Whitney is an investigative reporter and visual storyteller at Oklahoma Watch. Her emphasis is on domestic violence, mental health, and nursing homes affected by COVID-19. The reason we asked Whitney to be on the show today is because Oklahoma Watch partnered with State Impact Oklahoma for a brilliant, heartbreaking, and eye-opening in-depth story on mental health in Oklahoma. The collaboration between Oklahoma Watch and State Impact Oklahoma was aided by a grant from the Center for Cooperative Media at Montclair State in New Jersey and was supported by the Democracy Fund. For the series, Whitney worked alongside Quentin Chandler. He's the criminal justice reporter for State Impact Oklahoma, and he tells stories about courts, police, jails, and prisons, and how those affect everyday Oklahomans and, sadly, people experiencing mental illness. So to give you an idea about the three stories in this series, I wanted to read their titles. So the first is How to Bring Care to Mental Health Emergencies. Second is What Happens When Oklahoma City Police Respond to Mental Health Crisis. And three, Oklahoma City mental health emergencies outpaced police trained to handle them. And those are powerful titles and really sum up where we are in mental health in Oklahoma. So with all that being said, Whitney, welcome to the Mental Health Download. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. It's great to be here talking with you about mental health. Most definitely. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. Tell us the origin story of this mental health series. Yeah, so the series started quite a while ago, actually. It dates back, I would say, like a year and a half, or maybe it was even two years ago now. I attended an event in Oklahoma City where former Oklahoma City Police Chief Bill City was speaking about his son's mental health and how his family dealt with that and some of the things that they had experienced. And during his presentation, he mentioned that in Oklahoma City, police were seeing a drastic increase in mental health calls. At the time, I think he had said those those numbers had nearly doubled. So, you know, the reporter and me pulled the notepad out of my purse, jotted down that that little tidbit. And basically that that really kickstarted my interest in this story. So obviously, you know, I've done some other work in between that, but we requested the numbers from Oklahoma City Police dating back to 2013, because that's when they sort of created the current tracking system that they have now. So it was a good apples to apples comparison. And we looked at, you know, how many calls were coming in those years, how police were responding to those calls. We looked at police trained to respond to mental health calls and so many other things. And I would say late last year, we decided we wanted to collaborate on this project. We felt like as we got more and more information about it, we really just felt like there was a lot to report here. And we wanted to make sure that we were doing these stories justice. And for us, that meant, you know, getting more partners on board to help us 
create the content, report the story, but also, you know, our philosophy at Oklahoma Watch is the more people that hear and see these stories, the better. We we try to do a public service and that doesn't help folks if they don't hear and see the information that we spend so much time putting together. So we thought that was a, a great partnership to reach out to KGOU and State Impact And Quentin Chandler got really excited about the idea that we were pitching. His obviously interest in criminal justice heavily overlaps with with what we had. And he and I had a phone call and, and, you know, I remember it just being like, I felt like we were just talking over each other the whole time about like all the things we wanted to report and do and ask and people we wanted to talk to. And so that was kind of the, the Kickstarter for us to jointly work on the project. And then we spent about, gosh, I bet it it was eight to 10 months, I guess, putting the package together. Of course, part of that was, you know, delays with COVID. We, We both had been working on so many other stories in addition to this package and and COVID made it much more difficult to report stories, especially uh, stories like this, where, you know, we're trying to be more sensitive than normal. I think, in talking to folks like George Crooks, who has bipolar disorder and agreed to tell his story. So those things, you know, caused a little bit of delay in us being able to do the reporting and put the piece together. But I think that we both, Quentin and I, as well as our organizations, felt like we ultimately got what we wanted and were able to tell the story that that we kind of went into it hoping to tell. You know, as a mental health advocate, I read these stories and was so moved by the fact that you told it in such a compassionate way. You use person first language and, you know, you tell the story of George Crooks, who who I personally know, but did not know his full story. Um, And it is powerful. And you saw him as the amazing advocate and human being that he is rather than seeing him just as his diagnosis. So thank you. So when someone reads a series, What's the one thing that you hope stays with them long after they've finished the piece? Wow, that's a big ask. There's so so much in these stories. I mean, what we really tried to do is, you know, to lay out the situation, the history of kind of how we got to this point of having all these mental health calls, how police respond to these calls. And then, of course, you mentioned the other two stories where we looked at anecdotes from police reports that, that literally showed us, you know, how police were responding to mental health calls. And then in, in that third story, you know, we talked about solutions, things that can improve these interactions or rather lessen these interactions between people with uh, mental illness or mental health struggles and police. I think the thing, at least for me personally, in reporting the stories that that continually came back up and back up and back up was most people we spoke to for this story, in fact, all but one, believe police should not be answering these calls. Everyone we spoke to, including police officers themselves, mental health experts, people with uh, mental illness, lawmakers, the, the list goes on and on. When we asked them, do you think police should be answering these calls? Emphatically, they said no. The only person that actually said yes was George Crooks, 
who is, as we discussed briefly, he's an Oklahoma City man who has bipolar disorder, and he has been picked up by police for that disorder more than 50 times in his life, more than 50 times. And he was the person who said to us, it's scary. This is not a great way to do it. But he doesn't see another option because, you know, his family tries to get him to voluntarily go to the hospital. They try to encourage him to voluntarily get treatment when he is in the midst of a manic episode and he refuses. He doesn't want to do it. And so he said to us, you know, I probably would not get the help that I needed if police did not come and handcuff me and put me in the back of their cruiser and drive me to the hospital. So to us that really, the juxtaposition of those, those ideas really stood out in the fact that, you know, this, this man feels like there's no other way to get him there. And yet the people who are getting him there really don't feel like this is a good solution. And then as we were talking about before the podcast, you know, I was telling Whitney that the thing that will stay with me after reading those three stories, and there were so many facts and statistics that I'll be drawing from to educate the general public and the media, but it's the one quote from George Crook's sister where she talks about how she wants to be there when law enforcement show up because, you know, she wants to explain to them that he isn't a threat and to please don't harm him. I mean, goodness. And that brings me to one of the most startling statistics that you have in this series, and it's actually that the risk of being killed during a police encounter is actually 16 times greater for individuals with untreated mental illness. And that's from a 2015 report from the Treatment Advocacy Center. Tell me what you thought about that statistic, Whitney. We read a lot about the risk to people with mental illness when they encounter police for any reason. And so it was shocking to us that in Oklahoma, we are intentionally putting police in, in these encounters with people with mental illness. And of course, mental health calls are often calls to address people who have untreated mental illness, people who are being treated are being called in less often. Now, George, of course, is an exception to that. You know, he receives regular treatment for his bipolar disorder. He takes medication. He has family support. He has private health insurance. You know, he often told us he's the exception to the rule. He's one of the lucky ones who has all of the things that he needs lined up to support him. And yet he's still you know, relying on these police encounters to get help. But yes, 16 times greater risk for people who have an untreated mental illness of being killed during a police encounter. I think one of the saddest stories in the series, and there are plenty of them, is what happened to Dustin Pigeon. And I'm going to leave it to you to tell our audience about that heartbreaking story that happened back in 2017. Yeah, I mean, this entire series had a, a pretty deep impact, honestly, on, on me personally. I mean, as an investigative journalist, the stories that I typically do are not lighthearted and, you know, fun stories to report. But, you know, I believe deeply in, in the work that we're doing and the public service that we're trying to provide. And so ultimately, you know, it's worth that. 
in this case, this was a, a very difficult story for us to report. And that situation with Dustin Pigeon in Oklahoma City was extremely difficult. I, I personally watched the body camera footage of what happened that night probably 30 times. I mean, it was at least a couple dozen times, you know, because I wanted to make sure that I was being not only completely accurate, but also just representing what happened in the most transparent way to our readers. Of course, you know, the story itself, the the project itself was not about blaming police or pointing a finger at anyone specifically. It's about highlighting the gaps in our systems here in Oklahoma. It's about what could be done better. It's about how to improve things. And so we felt like Dustin Pigeon's story was a way to highlight some of those gaps in the system and show people in a real world scenario what what can happen, what has happened, and why these situations can be problematic. So as you said, Dustin Pigeon, he was in Oklahoma City. He called police and made some suicidal comments, said that he was suicidal. So that's one of those mental health calls that, that we're counting in the story. Police arrived on scene and basically there were two officers who were you know, who arrived. Dustin Pigeon was standing outside in the front yard. He had uh, a lighter in one hand and lighter fluid in the other. He had, had doused himself in the lighter fluid. And so these two officers that arrived on scene were, you know, telling him to put it down, telling him, kind of yelling commands at him to put things down and, and to listen to what they had to say. And then a third officer arrived on scene and started pointing his gun at Dustin Pigeon, he threatened to shoot him. And then very quickly after he did that, he fired and and he did shoot Dustin Pigeon. And that officer was not trained in CIT, which is crisis intervention training. So that is Oklahoma City Police, as well as many other police departments across the state and the country, actually offer this voluntary mental health training to officers. So it's an additional 40 hours of training that teaches these officers about how to de-escalate situations, how to communicate differently with people who may be struggling with mental illness or other mental health factors. So the officer who shot and killed Dustin Pigeon had not received crisis intervention training. And so that was, you know, that was a factor it seems, in that scenario. And I know that when he was actually charged and and convicted of murder for that situation and during the trial, you know, it came out that not only was he not trained in mental health, but he actually didn't follow basic police training techniques to de-escalate confrontations, even if they're not specific to, to mental health. So really was a tragic story that we just felt like provided our readers an opportunity to think about a scenario that they probably remember, that they're probably familiar with from just a couple of years ago, that really shows that statistic in real life and shows that it's not just a statistic. You know, these are are real situations and they're happening here in our backyard. 
And as you talked about, one of the main aims of the series was to not just talk about the situation, but what the solutions are. And we've touched on some of those solutions, including more training for law enforcement. But I always like on this show to give people, you know, the magic wand. And I say, look, you know, make this situation better. So Whitney, what do you do? Yeah. So it's funny that you put it like a magic wand because when I interviewed Carrie Slatten Hodges, she's the commissioner at the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. That's exactly how I put it to her. I said, you know, if you had a magic wand and you could wave it around and get all the funding you needed and everything would just magically um, fall into place immediately, what would you do? And she believes, and I, and I think a lot of the mental health experts that we spoke to believe that police really should not be involved in most of these calls. Now, there is a caveat to that. You know, occasionally people with mental illness can become violent. They can be a danger to themselves and to others. And there are situations where we need someone, you know, as, as Carrie put it, we need someone to be able to turn on those sirens and get there quickly and respond immediately to a situation. And I think everyone agrees with that. But in the vast majority of cases, that's not the best solution. So what she believes and what a lot of folks are saying, you know, we would ideally like to do in Oklahoma is to create these mobile crisis teams so we currently have them for youth in Oklahoma and they're stationed around the state so that no one is too far from assistance. And, you know, that looks like having mental health trained experts, people who are licensed mental health experts who have, you know, hundreds of hours of training, years of training in mental health, not, you know, 40 hours of training like these police officers, the best trained police officers have. And they would be stationed around the state. And then when these types of calls came in, like Dustin Pigeon, for instance, who called in and said he was suicidal, one of these mobile crisis teams would be sent to Dustin Pigeon's home. You know, if they couldn't resolve and de-escalate the situation over the phone, they would arrive at the home and, and basically do a house call. They would work with him directly and try to de-escalate the situation, find out what sort of help and treatment he needed, evaluate what the next step should be. And then if someone like Dustin Pigeon, for instance, needed to go to a hospital for inpatient treatment or needed additional help that these mobile crisis units could not provide, then they would transport him to the hospital or whatever other location they needed to. What's happening now is police are making those decisions. And as we've talked about, you know, they, they don't have the training, they don't have the experience to properly assess and then execute those treatment plans. So that really is, I think, kind of the ideal scenario. Now that's also, you know, the last step in the process of, of a mental health call. So what we're talking about is someone who's in crisis, who has already sort of gone through all of the other steps of trying to get help before this last piece of the puzzle needs to come in. Someone actually needs to come on the scene and, you know, be there face to face to help them. You know, before that happens, 
ideally we should have a lot more stop gaps in place to catch these people before they reach crisis. So that's part of the magic wand as well, right? Is, you know, things like preventative and maintenance care. We need more treatment for not only diagnosing mental illness to begin with, people need to know what they're dealing with in order to properly treat it, but then also, you know, just maintaining the treatment that they do need. So I think I keep going back to George Crooks. He's a great example of this. You know, he says that he goes to monthly visits with his counselor. He is on regular medication. Again, he has family members who his sister lives literally next door to him. One of his his ex-wife, who he's very good friends with, lives, I think, a mile away from him. He's got a lot of people near him who are watching out for him and providing support, you know, when life gets stressful and, and he's triggered. So all of those things need to be in place in order to ideally catch people like George before it escalates into a crisis scenario. But once that crisis does happen, once you know it goes beyond a counseling session for help, that's really where these mobile crisis units would come into play. So Whitney, I know you take your job very seriously, but this series has so much knowledge and compassion and just is really told from a mental health advocate's perspective almost. And, you know, basically my question is, why are you so passionate about mental health? I would say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I, I mean, I hate to say it in this way, but, you know, that's my job. My job is to make sure that our readers not only understand the facts, obviously we want to provide them with information they need in order to make decisions about how to live their life and, and how to vote and how to, you know, act as, a, as an involved, you know, public citizen, right, and be engaged in their communities. I think that sounds a little bit cold maybe when I say it in that way, but I truly believe in that mission as a journalist. And and that is what makes me passionate about every story that I report, especially for, for a publication like Oklahoma watch, you know, I really believe in the, in the mission that we have and in sort of raising voices of underserved Oklahomans and reaching into communities that are not being heard that's something that we try to do with every piece. In terms of personal stories, you know, I have people in my life who maybe don't have a diagnosed mental illness, but I know a lot of people who have experienced very deep trauma. And I think we've been talking about that a lot in Oklahoma over the last couple of years and how many mental health challenges arise from whether it's childhood trauma or, you know, trauma later in life. And so that is something that I personally have connected with family members and friends about and something that really drives a lot of this reporting. In fact, I'm, I'm working through another project right now that specifically addresses mental health based on childhood trauma. So that's something that we are kind of shifting focus to in one of our, our next pieces. But I would also say, you know, that for me, as a journalist, you asked about this earlier, but the, the trauma and the mental health impact of reporting on these stories is very real for me. I, you know, I, I 
do my best to put myself in the shoes of my sources, whether it's a politician, a lawmaker, you know, Carrie Slatton Hodges is the commissioner of the, you know, the state department that controls all of the, all of the money, you know, that's going towards these services, or whether it's George Crooks who has bipolar disorder and, you know, has been put in the back of a police car. So I kind of see that as my personal mission as a journalist. I don't think that I can write about these stories and accurately reflect what's happening in our state if I can't imagine myself in that scenario, how I might feel, and then better understand how how people who are really in these situations feel. And so, you know, I, I think that that philosophy helps hopefully with my reporting and writing and storytelling, but it, it's very much a personal impact and, and it definitely affects my mental health, you know, reporting on stories like this. So I think I can relate at least in a small way to people who we interviewed for this story. And, you know, I feel the, the burdens and the heaviness just like anyone else would of hearing these stories over and over And, you know, I think it's something we can all relate to right now, especially more than ever with COVID, with isolation. We're all having to think about things in a very different way than than I think most of us have ever experienced before. So that has added to, you know, the the mental health that I'm experiencing right now. And I'm I'm definitely having to look at new ways to to deal with that and address that and just make sure that I'm staying healthy in order to keep telling stories like this. Yeah. um, I think the the one stat, and actually Terry White, our new CEO, who you'll be speaking with, she's the uh, former commissioner of the Department of Mental Health. She actually shared one of your statistics with an audience the other night. and it's that in 2019, Oklahoma City, law enforcement had about 20,000 mental health related calls. And this year, through the first six months, I think it's already up about 5% and probably will well exceed 20,000 mental health calls in 2020. So what did you think about that statistic when you first saw it? Yeah, honestly, that was the statistic that that really kickstarted this, right? That that. I mentioned earlier in our conversation that I heard Chief Bill City talk about the increase in mental health calls nearly doubling. And the fact that they had doubled, I mean, I didn't know what those numbers were, but the fact that they had doubled since 2013 seemed outrageous to me. Whoa, why is that happening? Right. That's when my red flags went up. And then when we started requesting the numbers, there were just over 10,000 mental health calls that came into Oklahoma City Police in 2013. And as you said, we hit nearly 20,000 calls in 2019. And we are on track to exceed that now in 2020. And that is just, I mean, so we did, we did some math to kind of see what does that look like for the Oklahoma City Police Department and for Oklahoma City residents that, that average comes out to mean that police in Oklahoma City are responding to more than 50 of those calls every single day. So 50 calls a day that come into Oklahoma City police are mental health calls. And of course, those are substance abuse related calls, calls where someone has a diagnosed or maybe an undiagnosed mental illness. Maybe they are suicidal, maybe you know, one one example that was given to me by Oklahoma City Police when I asked what these calls look like 
you know, they said it can be anything from a really severe call where maybe it comes in as a domestic uh, dispute and an officer goes out and finds out that mental illness is part of uh, what's happening in that situation. So then it becomes a mental health call and they, you know, need to respond a bit differently than what they anticipated when they thought it was sort of a standard domestic dispute call. But another example is, you know, they had someone call in uh, a passerby, someone in a vehicle called in and said they were driving down the road and a man was walking down the sidewalk talking to himself. So police went out and responded and it turned out that that man had a Bluetooth piece in his ear and was talking on the phone. So that's obviously not typical, but you know, we got, we got a little bit of a chuckle out of that one because you know, actually police do respond to many calls like that where someone is walking down the street or, or walking down the sidewalk and is talking to themselves because they are actually hallucinating or, you know, hearing voices or dealing with some sort of severe mental illness. But in this case, it was just someone talking on the phone and you couldn't see the, the, the earpiece, you know, in their ears. So those numbers, though, I mean, to think about how many calls are coming in, 20,000 calls, it, it looks like for this year, um, coming in just, as you said, to Oklahoma City police. And of course, this is a, a statewide and a nationwide problem. So those are, are pretty shocking numbers for us. And that really drove the, the story forward. Yeah. And I want to make a point that your mental health series is a part of the solution. You know, you're speaking to the general public, but you're also speaking to law enforcement and policymakers and all the people who will share these stories on social media as a reminder that this is unacceptable and we must do something about it. So thank you for this series. Um, before I let you go, I know that Ted Struley is with Oklahoma Watch Now, and he is one of the greatest mental health advocates in this state and any other, you know, and that's because his late son had serious mental illness. So tell us about Ted's role in this series. And then if you can, tell us about some of the reactions that you've gotten from this series that he helped make possible. Yeah, well, for us, you know, Ted was vital for me personally in reporting this story, just because of the both the personal and work experience that he's had with mental health in the past. So, you know, he he pointed me in the right direction a couple of times. We discussed certain aspects of the story occasionally. And of course, he was, you know, reading and, and helping to edit through the story as we were going through the, the many iterations of the stories that that we had, you know, things were changing really quickly nationally while this story was underway. You know, we had written a draft of it even before George Floyd was killed and we scrapped it. You know, we were like, we can't, you know, we can't run the story and ignore this discussion about policing that's now swept, you know, the entire country. And then, of course, Daniel Prude, you know, recently in Rochester, New York, you know, again, we we rewrote chunks of the story because we just don't feel like we can ignore the national and local conversations that are happening around those things. So Ted was was vital in sort of helping us to navigate and, and sort of a backstop for me personally and making sure that we were being sensitive and that we were being, you know, holistic in our reporting. Yes. I think that's very important when telling stories like this, you know, we could have put something out that just said, 
you know, these calls are, have doubled, but I think we really felt like we needed to dig into the, the why behind that. How is it happening and what can we do about it? How did we get here? Those are all pieces of the puzzle that we needed. In terms of the reaction from others, Quentin and I both have received phone calls from people who thanked us for the reporting and shared some sort of personal story. You know, one woman in Oklahoma City called Quentin and told him about an encounter that her son had with Oklahoma City police. I've had people uh, DMing me on Twitter, sharing personal stories. One woman shared a story about how she worked in an office where a, a woman had lit herself on fire in the street outside and she and a a colleague had gone out to try to help you know help with that situation so she shared a little bit about that we've heard we've heard from mental health treatment providers and counselors who want us to know that there are, are other things that could be done or other pieces of this puzzle that you know obviously we as much as we put out there we can't cover every single detail of these stories in one fell swoop you guys would be sick of reading and, and watching videos if we did that I'm sure you're already there because we because it was a lot that we put out at once. But we do want to follow up. We want to keep reporting on this. This is not a one and done situation. Mental health in Oklahoma is overlaps with, frankly, I think every story that we do at Oklahoma Watch. You mentioned early on that one of the things I'm covering right now is COVID and nursing homes. And I'll tell you, I'm working on a story right now about that topic and mental health is at the crux of that story. So we want to hear that feedback. We want to hear from people who have had these encounters with police or were were there for some some of these encounters whether they were positive or negative you know we're not just looking for again we're not looking to point the finger at police you know who have done something wrong we want to hear how it's working whether it's working what could we be done better and help to be you know part of the solution and so we i mean i would just say if if you have a story you want to share about mental health I would love to hear from you personally. Please reach out to me. My DMs are always open on Twitter. I'm Sooner Reporter on Twitter, or you can just type my name in there and find me. My contact information is at the bottom of every single one of our stories, and you can always email me at Oklahoma Watch. It's W-B-R-Y-E-N at OklahomaWatch.org. And I'd just love to hear your stories. And of course, I'm finding that it's uh, in some ways therapeutic for folks as well to see stories like George Crooks, who shared his story publicly, and then feel a little bit less alone. So, you know, George George was one of the brave ones who agreed to let us spend some time with him and, and share his story very publicly. But not every story has to be that way. And, and we want to listen regardless of whether, you know, you're okay with us putting your story out there for the world to see or whether you just feel the need to share your experience. Yeah. And just to note that all of those ways to contact Whitney are in the show notes, as well as all the links to this brilliant mental health series. So the last thing that we do here, Whitney, is we ask our guest to close us out by sharing one last piece of wisdom. So if you can do that... We'll be done. 
Hmm, last bit of wisdom. You know, we talked about this a little bit throughout um, the conversation, but I think that I've learned a lot personally from reporting on this series about how important it is to check your own mental health and, and to just be aware and address any concerns or issues or, or new new things that arise. For me, there definitely was some of that during the reporting of this story. You know, I caught myself, I caught myself watching the body camera footage, you know, one too many times one day and just decided like I needed to step away from it that day and give myself a break. Those kind of things are traumatic. And while it's my job to see them and to report on them, you know, it's also my job to stay as healthy as I can so that I can continue to do that job. And so I think that my wisdom would be like, don't, don't forget about yourself in all of this. Make sure that you're checking in on your own mental health needs and fulfilling those. You know, for me, I think I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I, I don't currently have, you know, a diagnosed mental illness that I am, you know, challenged with, with, sort of balancing every single day, but I still have uh, needs in terms of mental health care that, you know, I get busy and forget to address. I think we all do. And and right now we've talked about it's, it's a little more heightened with COVID-19, with being isolated, you know, with the weather changing. I'm, I'm a sunshine kind of person. You know, I love the sunshine. That's been a big stress reliever for me. And actually in reporting on this story in particular, you know, just sitting on my back patio and enjoying a little bit of, of sunshine has been real helpful. So I'm trying to be a little extra careful these days to check in on myself when we're having this gloomy and cooler weather. So yeah, I mean, I think self-care is something we talk about a lot, but it's not always something that we take to heart and do, you know, physically do. So I'm trying to do more of that and I hope others will do that as well.